Welcome to the Redemption Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information, feel free to visit our website, redemptionshill.com. I wanted to stay in that attitude of worship and praise and gratitude and seeking and longing for the Lord and the Spirit as we read our text for today. And this morning, as we continue our series in 1 Corinthians, we'll be in chapter 15. Starting with verse 35, the word of the Lord says this. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind of hum- for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for, different, for stars differ from stars in glory. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Reading with verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must be put on, must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, Where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your your labor is not in vain. Let's pray. God, we just celebrate and we just praise your goodness Lord, these things that we read in your word today, Lord, of victory over death, 
victory over heartache and, and the sting of death, God, because of what you have done for us through your son, Jesus. Lord, would you speak to our hearts through the preaching of your word today? Would you send your spirit to awaken us, to light a fire in us, God, to go out and live the way that you have called us to? Lord, we thank you for your presence here, and we pray that in everything that happens in this place, you be glorified. In your mighty and heavenly name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. All right, well, it's good to be here with you uh, this morning. We're getting really close to landing the plane in this series uh, over 1 Corinthians. Uh, there'll be two more messages after this week, and we'll be all uh, the way done. So this text that we're in this week, this second half of chapter uh, 15, this, uh, this sermon is going to serve as kind of a uh, sequel or part B uh, of the sermon that we gave last week. Uh, so if you enjoyed last week, awesome. If you didn't, sorry, we're going to do it more. Uh, so this entire chapter comes uh, really by way of one question that was being asked uh, and wrestled with by the people in Corinth. And that question uh, was this. It surrounded the idea of what exactly happens to people after uh, they die. And does nothing happen? Does does something happen? Do, do people come back some way or, or somehow? Or does death just have the final say and we make other, other things up to kind of try and cope in the in-between? What exactly happens uh, after death? Uh, we may not uh, voice it regularly, but I think this is a question that we all wrestle with at some point. Generally, it happens when someone we know dies. We begin wrestling with this question, and that is the one that they are wrestling with as well. So uh, Corinth, as they're wrestling with the questions about what happens when people die, many had adopted the, uh, the perspective or the idea that nothing could ever happen, that that was just kind of it, that the resurrection or the idea of, of a person who had already been uh, buried coming back to life was just too much for them. It seemed impossible. So they concluded that death really did have the final word. It was the final chapter. And then they began to kind of tell other people as if they're preaching this bad news of, no, that's just really it. And, uh, and we should stop saying anything else. We need to live in the reality of what's actually true. They began to kind of proselytize and preach that there was no uh, resurrection at all. I want to press upon us the relatability of the struggle because we can tend to read things like this and be like, I don't know how that fits into my life, uh, but it fits quite easily wrestling with the, the resurrection into our life. Can you imagine going to coffee with an unbelieving friend and, and them asking you about your belief about what happens after death? Maybe, maybe they know you're the church person or the Christian person or their coworker, and they're like, hey, man, will you get coffee with me? They begin to ask, hey, what happens after death? And you begin to share them your biblical belief that Christ died for our sins, he was raised from the dead, and he was the first of more to come after him, and that the Bible declares that King Jesus will one day return to fix things, and believers who've passed away will be resurrected just like their Savior. All right, come on now. Friends, we have to own it. That story, our hope, our faith is extremely irrational. Right? The idea of sitting across a coffee table and saying that to someone, it's weird in some ways because it's not rational, and that's exactly the point. It's not rational, and it's maybe not natural because it's supernatural. It's not something that can be conjured up or accomplished. If it was natural, we could do it on our own, but we can't. It is something 
divine. By human hands and our efforts, we cannot accomplish this. It is only God and the God of the Bible who can. So when we end up in the situation of when we're asked what we believe, side note, that doesn't really happen very much, so you're going to have to figure out how to share your beliefs in a different way. But when that happens, it shouldn't be that surprising that when you begin telling people your biblical beliefs, you're going to get some strange looks. They're going to give you expressions like, I knew you were weird, but I didn't know you were that weird. I didn't know you were that kind of of crazy in the moment. If you remember in the beginning of 1 Corinthians, Paul told us this was coming. He says, hey, you understand that the gospel that we stand in, uh, you're going to look insane. You're going to look ridiculous. They're going to think that you're the dumbest person around for believing in the gospel. Our hope is considered insane in the world. So when presented with a situation where you talk about your faith in the the world with people who don't believe what you believe, it is not unfathomable or even unlikely that you're going to feel crazy because people are going to tell you you're crazy. In the middle of that tension where you get strange looks from other people, there can be this tension where you're like, maybe I'm the crazy one. Maybe they're right. It's not inconceivable to say that we could wrestle with the idea of resurrection. But this is where Hebrews 11, 1 through 3 comes in. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. I have the other verses, but verse 1 will do. We can never forget that our faith is exactly that. It's faith. We cling to, we go all in, we throw the full weight of our lives, our soul, and our eternity into something that is a reality that we cannot see with our physical eyes all the time. This is what we do. I hope that you can see and identify with Corinth on why maybe they could possibly wrestle in some way or somehow with the idea of the resurrection. So Paul then begins to meet the growing movement of believers who are denying the the resurrection with a really strong reaction in the text that we read last week, the front half of chapter 15. And he does it with a strong reaction because to disbelieve in the resurrection will be devastating to your faith. So he gives a razor precise argument uh, to, to kind of show why this shouldn't be. He declares first the necessity of the gospel. It's the only thing that saves. It's what we hold to. We don't waver from it. And if we don't hold to it, our, our faith is, is no good to us. He said after that, here's the history of the gospel. He wanted to show that he didn't monkey with it and nobody else monkeyed with it. He gave them what was given to him, the historical gospel, which has at its center that Jesus was resurrected on the third day. Why does he do, do this? He gives an intricate path to show that the gospel is everything. It is the only thing that saves. It's the thing that we hold to And if at the center of the gospel is the resurrection of Jesus Christ on the third day, he presents this idea of how can you believe in the gospel and deny the resurrection? You can't. Those things are at odds. Paul's entire point is without the resurrection, we are without a savior or a hope. Without the resurrection, here's the sad truth. We get life here. We get pain. We get suffering. We get death. And then we get judgment. That's all we get. We get no end date to our suffering. Uh, We get no tangible hope in the here and now. We get a faith to us now that's literally useless to you in eternity. So Paul declares with all of his authority that he has that to deny the resurrection is to pull the hinge pin out of the gospel, make it fall to the ground, and to deny the resurrection is to deny Jesus. Because if the resurrection isn't true, Jesus is a liar and a lunatic, but not Lord. You cannot pull the pin 
The denial of the resurrection had far-reaching implications. He showed us as well. Those implications reach down into your everyday life. If you deny the resurrection, you're going to live the YOLO, eat and drink for tomorrow. You're going to die type of life. Squeeze everything out of life that you can now because you may die and you get nothing else. He calls us out of this. He says, do not do that. You will live in the illusion of the American dream if you do not realize that there is a resurrection trying to get all that you can and pretend you're happy with it. Now, in this week's text, Paul will be dealing with the matter of resurrection again. But instead of, uh, of laying out the case of why the, the, the resurrection is crucial to uh, Christianity, he's going to lay out some arguments uh, that, that are going to go against some popular questions that are going to come at him. The beginning of the text will, says someone will ask, and what Paul is doing is he's going to bring up some objections that either he has heard or he anticipates them coming, and they are formed in two questions. Someone will ask, how are the dead raised in resurrection? And some will ask, what kind of bodies will they have when resurrected? On the surface, these appear like harmless questions. You're like, yeah, I kind of wonder that same thing. But Paul saw these not as questions, but as objections um, given in different ways. Paul thought that these were um, really a cloaked mocking of the general resurrection. If you're following me, have you ever heard a question that's a statement? I just gave one. There you go. It's like he knows that people are asking just how exactly, Paul, just how exactly are people going to come back from the dead? smart guy. And just what exactly are they going to look like when they claw themselves out of the ground, Paul? What's that going to be like? like these, are, these are mocking questions. Uh, it's believed that these questions stem out of what is called dualism. They were taught that the soul and the body are two different things. This was popular in their time. The soul is good. Uh, the, the body is, is bad, right? So when you die, it's not really a bad thing because your soul is then liberated out of the corruption of uh, the body. So many interpreters believe that the Corinthians understood that Christians would be resurrected from the dead. But here's where they really struggled. They thought that they would be resurrected from the dead in the exact same bodies that they possessed before death. Right? That there would be no change, that there would be no perfection or no switch in their body. So the same old body that went into the ground, however decomposed or whatever else it was, was just going like to crawl itself out and, and come say hi to you. Many thought the, the resurrection resembled this awful scene of reanimated, unrestored corpses coming out of the ground, all decomposed and whatnot. Right? They, they were rejecting the resurrection partially because to them it seemed like a horror movie. They thought it was like walking dead meets night of the living dead for some of them, uh, which if that is what the resurrection is like, I could understand going like, I don't know if I like that. that I, don't, I don't know, man. So Paul says this to it at the very beginning. How foolish. How foolish. Showing them that's definitely not the way it's going uh, to be. If you think, If you think of God's incomparable abilities... Right, All that he was done, all that he has created, all that he has uh, available to him, do you really think that that's the best that he could muster, that when the credits rolled through eternity, uh, that zombie-like Christians are going to walk around in quote-unquote glory? Is that the best the Father can do? I don't, I don't think it is. Even though Paul believed that the resurrection would be this way, and he thought that believing otherwise was foolish, he still took the time to address um, 
why it was foolish. Paul appealed to regular natural occurrences that demonstrated something different than a body going in and coming out in the same or more decomposed way than when it went in. He says this, okay, so when you sow, this is talking about gardening or or, or agriculture, planting something. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be Instead, you plant a seed into the ground as if it were dead, and it gives way to what? A new body, something different than what you buried. His point is is kind of this. If you want an oak tree to grow out of the ground in your backyard, you don't go tear out your neighbor's oak tree, dig a massive hole, and put it into the ground and cover it up, hoping that that'll pop out of the ground later. That's not the way things work. If you just look around us, we could see if you want an oak tree, you put the the seed into the ground and later the body of the tree will, will pop up. The resurrection is kind of the exact same way. The body that goes into the ground, God gives it a new body before it comes back out. And it comes out different than the way it went in. Paul is saying the resurrection will be just like that. God will give new bodies to us. But here's some of the good part. The splendor or glory of those new bodies will be different than the splendor of glory than the old bodies. Though Paul doesn't answer the exact question of of what exactly will the bodies be like here, he does say that they will not be the exact same. We will not worry about this weird walking dead scene happening to us. Paul goes even further in verses 38 through 41 to show some of the differences around the resurrected body from the body that you had before. Uh, but he says this first, actually. He goes, as bodies, uh, God has created many kinds of bodies, and we see them. There's the bodies of people, the bodies of animals, the body of birds, the body of fish. Then he, then he goes big. Then there's the heavenly bodies and the, the earthly bodies. There's the sun. There is the moon. There is the, the stars. His point is if God can make all of that, if that's in his re- resume, on his resume, and in his wheelhouse, then why would you doubt that he could make you a new body? He created the sun. I think he can fix your broken body. I think he can make something more glorious with more splendor and give it out of his love to his people when he restores all things and fixes all things. Again, though Paul won't reveal every detail of the resurrection body, he then does give us four key differences in between the two bodies, the old body and the new. He's painting a picture of eschatology, the end things, what happens then, what we don't get now, but what we get later, saying that the body is sown, meaning the the body that is buried is sown, uh, and that body is perishable. Uh, that, That one seems obvious, right? Our bodies now from birth are perishing, and they are breaking down. In our younger years, we are like, nah, that doesn't really happen to me, but then age slips in and smacks you in the face and shows you it's real. You begin noticing things like wrinkles and pains and having to wake up and go to the bathroom four times in the middle of the night, and you begin to realize, well, maybe my body is changing a little bit. But the body that we get when we are raised is imperishable. It will not waste away, it will not fade, and it will never die. This reality is one so glorious that we can't really fathom all that it will look like. Our bodies, think about it, our bodies now, they are not immune to breaking down even though the new fad, uh, look at California and, and, and educated people, the new fad is to do all that you can to stop your body from breaking down. 
right? We, we work out uh, a lot. We eat good food, no hormones, only, only like ground to table, all of that stuff. And we sleep many hours and we do all of these things, um, put all of these rhythms in our lives, thinking that they will help us to have our bodies not perish or not break down. But you don't have to look very far for the perfect uh, physical specimen who has uh, disciplined their body, does all the things that I don't. They run every day, say no to French fries, donuts, beer, tacos, which I don't want to live that kind of life. Uh, And then they get leveled by a diagnosis of cancer or a brain aneurysm. You can do everything in your power to make yourself healthy, and it can be snatched out of your hands in a second. Last fall through the spring was a rude reminder of that reality for me personally. Uh, Last fall, I got just hammered down by the worst season of depression that I've ever had. I don't know that I've had light struggles with, no, heavy struggles with anxiety, but I don't know that I've went into full seasons of depression until uh, last year, but I had one and it smashed me. And what I thought in my wisdom is, you know what? I'm gonna work out harder. I'm gonna CrossFit like crazy and I'm gonna make myself feel better. I'm kind of figuring, you know, if I could get stronger, then I'll do all that chemical stuff. It'll kind of release in your body and I'll feel better and I'll kind of press off of this uh, depression. So I began working out as hard as I could until I tore my hip flex. So then I waited for a little while, healed up from that. I'm like, I'm back. Let's do it again. Then I herniated a disc in my neck so bad that I smashed the nerves on the right side of my body, sending excruciating pain through my body when I tried to sleep. I didn't sleep very well for months. Caused a train of doctor's appointments that would never end, MRIs, bills, shots, pills, all to try and make me feel better. And what they did is very quickly showed it doesn't matter what you think of yourself or if you think you're fit or strong, that can be taken away in an instance. Paul's saying to us that the body that is raised will be better than the body that you have now. The body that we get later, it won't do the wasting away thing. It won't do the breaking down thing, illness, brokenness, all of the other things that plague our body and our mind, they'll be gone. Think of, think of a world where sickness and even mental health struggles is foreign to you. This is what will happen in the raised body. Paul also says that the body sown is one sown in dishonor, but the one raised is one raised in glory. In the fall in Genesis 3, sin has infected and affected us. It's the reason that death entered into creation, but it also shows itself in our actions and our lives and our hearts. So in this way that we've been dishonored through sin, we carry this dishonor. And Paul's saying, hey, when, you, when, you're, when you're buried and you're raised again, you won't be marred by that sin that's dishonored you and hurt you. Instead, the glory of God will be what marks us and prevails in us. Third, Paul says, the old body is sown in weakness, but the new one will be raised in power. This line, this idea, this thought could be prodded and processed for, for hours upon hours, but Just a couple things. We see the weakness in us through bodies that break down. We see weakness in us through falling into and walking into temptation regularly and on purpose. We see weakness in and through the way that we know what is right and we do the opposite on purpose. We see the weakness in us through trying to live in our own strength all the time and seeing how well that works out. And we see weakness in and through us through trying to choose to ignore God or pretend we are God by pretending he isn't real all the time. See, Paul says this won't be our reality when a resurrected body is given to believers. At that point, we'll be reconciled to God fully 
with bodies that will never die. The power of sin will be broken along with death so they won't hurt us. We'll live in connection and communion with God like we were created to, and our souls will thrive through unhindered connection and worship to God. From weakness we will have come, but to power and wholeness we will rise. There'll be some difference, uh, there, there will be many differences between our earthly body and our spiritual one. Praise God for that. Now we have to catch what happens in the transition from verse 50 on. Before Paul anticipated uh, the pushback about objections to his teaching, he anticipates the how exactly are they going to be raised from the dead stuff. He anticipates the what exactly is that going to look like. But now what he does is he flips the question and he reverses it back to them. Instead of how uh, could, exactly could the resurrection happen, Paul is going to flip it back and say, well, how couldn't it happen? How couldn't it? Meaning without it, we have no hope. It has to happen. There is no other option for us to have a hope but for it to happen. It says in verse 50, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So we can strive to be faster, stronger, smarter, prettier, richer than everyone around us. But all of those efforts in flesh and blood, all of our attempts to make ourselves better, to make ourselves whole, to make ourselves clean, they, they do nothing for us. They will not do it. We cannot, by our own power, inherit the kingdom of God. We cannot get there. We've tried. Paul is going back to the gospel if you aren't catching it. The only way, the only door, the only path is through the Lamb of God who is Jesus. No height of human excellence, no matter what you achieve, no status, no fame, no bank account will ever buy you redemption. It is only when we are born again by believing in Jesus that we get that. It is only through the finished work of Christ on the cross, through his sacrifice, his death, his resurrection, that we can be made whole. And Paul adds this, and also the imperishable, meaning our physical bodies, they can never inherit the imperishable meaning what many call heaven, which is the unbroken, unmarred creation that Jesus will restore. See, we can't live in the healed and eternal kingdom of God still in our old flesh that is prone to sin. It's not going to work out very well. This is why God, through Jesus, will have to change our bodies, why the resurrection is needed for Jesus to raise from the grave, but it also needs to be a resurrection for us as well to make a switch from us to our earthly bodies to our spiritual bodies. This is also why he flips the question back, how couldn't it happen? Paul, again, assumes that we'll have this happen, that this question will come, that someone will say, okay, well, if the resurrection body is the only way to make it into the kingdom of God, what happens if Christ returns as the conquering king before I fall asleep, meaning before I die? Then what? Like, am I hosed? What happens then? And Paul just says, man, I'll tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, meaning die. But we all shall be changed, right? All who are in Jesus, in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the trumpet, which is the sound of Christ's return, uh, the dead will be raised imperishable. And those who haven't died yet, they're just going to be fast-tracked past an earthly death to an imperishable body. That's a real question we have. Well, what if I don't die? He's got you. We'll all be changed. 
Paul says, on that glorious day when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortal, then it shall come to pass as it is written that death will be swallowed up in victory. Catch that line for a moment. It it passes us by way too fast. On that day, when we are given new bodies, when we are the, well, Christ was the first fruits and we are the crop that comes behind that and we are resurrected as imperishable, on that day, death will be eradicated. It will be engulfed. It will be overcome by Christ. On that day, death will die. On that day, death will be killed, cast out of existence. How far will death be away? So much that people are singing a song, oh, death, where is your victory? How bad are you now? What can you do? Where's your sting? Hear what they're saying. Not only can you not kill us anymore, you can't even hurt us. You have no pain to inflict on us. You're done. Death will no longer claim victory over anyone or anything. It will be gone. It'll be done. This is the triumphant end for the people of God through the Son of God. Paul even explains a little bit more the sting of death, which is sin, will be gone too. Man, just let your heart rejoice in this. No more falling on your face. No more shame. No more brokenness. No no more, why did I do it again? Death is gone. Sin is gone. No more law. No more duty. Just delight in the arms of the Father. Then Paul says this, because of all of that, keep in mind all that he's laid out in chapter 15, thanks be to God who gives us the victory. That has to be more than just a couple strung together words for us, church. For Paul, chapter 15 has been a path And when he gets to the end of it, from the depths of his being, when thinking in the riches of mercy, the riches of God's mercy and his grace, when thinking about how time and time again what we deserve, how we have ignored God, how time and time again we've tried to replace God, how time and time we've proved that we can't save ourselves, how time and time again we have felt the pain of death land at our door. God, not because he had to, but because he wanted to, because he loves us and is rich in mercy, provided a way to end all of that through Jesus and his very real sacrifice for us on the cross. Jesus came to be all that we couldn't be and all that we have refused to be. He paid the debt that we should have had to, and this lines up the trajectory where one day death will be gone, sin will be gone, pain will be gone, and the victory of Jesus will become our inheritance that we'll see and walk in for an eternity. When Paul thinks about this, it's as if he yells out, thank God. Thanks be to God. Thank God that this has been done. I couldn't have done it. Friends, I don't know if you're feeling this, if you get the magnitude of it, What's the worst thing that could ever happen to you? No, don't give the, don't give the like, other answer. Well, like, what's, seriously, what's the worst thing that could happen? What's your worst fear? What's the absolute worst thing that could happen to you? It's death, 100%, no debate. Are there other things that are terrible? Absolutely, death is more terrible. The worst thing that could ever be taken from you is your life. Are you hearing the words of Paul? 
Jesus, the warrior, the lion of Judah, will one day return, and by his power and his glorious might, he will kill death. He will deal death its blow for eternity. Your worst-case scenario is taken off the table. If you are in Christ, eternally you have been taken care of. The worst thing that could happen to you will never happen to you. Though we will taste death here if Christ doesn't come first, we'll never taste it eternally. Not to mention all the shame that we feel, all the guilt that we feel, the great anxiety that we have over the weight of our failure and our sin. That'll be taken off the table. Death is gone. Sin is gone. Insecurity is gone. Self-loathing is gone one day. That is the future. That is the inheritance. That is the eternity that Paul is pointing to. And at the end of that, he seems to, to, to almost scream out, thank God for that. You need to hear the next part of his words, the, the close of it. It's like one of the greatest exhortations ever. Like I, I love Braveheart war type movies, but you need to see these not as just empty words from a dead man, but these are words to send us into war by that he gives. These ending, it's not just a cute ending sentence. This is calling us into something new, to, to wake up. This is calling the army of God to enter into the fray of the battle that we've been called into again. Paul's lined out the need for resurrection for the true gospel to be true, the need for resurrection for us to receive the future promises of God in eternity. And after laying out the enormity of our future hope through Jesus, Paul says, therefore, because you have a bright future, because all of that is true, because that is coming for you, because your worst case scenario is no longer possible to you if you are in Jesus, because all of that is really real, be steadfast, don't move, be immovable. Man, we got to teach you to amen. What can shake you? If you believe that, what can hurt you? Always abound because of that in the work of the Lord who has gone before you. Knowing that in the Lord your labor will not be in vain. Why? Because he's going to fulfill what he said he will fulfill. I mean, this is like the greatest hype speech ever filled with glorious truth instead of pop culture nonsense, where Paul says, in light of what you have coming in the future, do not let the pain of today and the weight of the world move you. Be steadfast and strong in the Lord. Not in you, in the Lord. Be immovable because he is immovable. And hear this, man, I pray that we don't hear it as legalism. And because that is all true, not only be immovable and steadfast, he also says overflow with, abound in work and service to God. Why? Man, when the perishable passes away one day, all other stuff, all other efforts, all other things that we've spent our time and our effort and our money and our hours upon will just fall away so insignificant, eclipsed by the eternal works of God. God's going. You have to understand this. I don't need you, but come be a part of what I'm doing. You won't regret it. Man, I think this is a, a great ending for this section that Paul has provided. When we see the picture of Revelation Jesus coming back to defeat his enemies, when we see the reality of judgment and the reality that there are many enemies of God 
that many are far from God and still underneath his wrath for their sin. Paul in this chapter calls us out of the YOLO life, out of the eat and drink type of life and onto his mission. He says, you have such a hope and many don't. Many still are stuck. Many are still perishable. Many still don't have what you do for that reason. Be strong and be salt. Be strong and be light. Be strong and walk in what Jesus called you to. Be immovable. Live out the implications of your salvation, not just in your mind, but in your world, in the here and now, so that you may taste the kingdom of God now. And hopefully by grace, other people would find it. We have to wake up and see it's the only the eternal that will stand for eternity. Paul is inviting us to invite into our view the, etern- the inter- eternal perspective once again. To live a life that views the long play of God and our need and others' need for salvation. The long play in the world and community around us that is still desperate for redemption. Thanks be to God that we have hope. Now let's pray and live to show it to others as well and live in light of it. This is what Paul is saying, and this is what the church is called to remember. Friends, in light of Paul calling us into the fray, I just humbly ask this question that I've I've had to meet myself as well. We're being called in. Abound in work. Be steadfast. Be immovable. Don't be fickle. Don't run. Don't hide. Get in there and go. Get in the fray. It'll pay off. You'll never regret it. Your hope is not in vain. Is it, is it possible that many of us in this room have programmed our life around our comfort, not our calling? That's what he's calling you into. If you're allowed duty, legalism. No, he's calling you to live in the light that you were called to. See, we have insulated our lives quite often to bring us ease. The path of least resistance. We get done what we have to 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 get a paycheck and, and enjoy our hobbies so much so that we're numb and shut off that Paul is calling us out today to be the church again. Saying, remember family, if you are in Christ, you have... All that you ever need coming for you already, but now in the battle, in the war, wake up and fight. Enter in. Don't run. Don't ignore. Walk in. I had several talks with people about last week's sermon just in, in passing. And, and if you remember, we read an excerpt from Revelation 19 about Jesus, the warrior Jesus. And through some of the talks and the presentation of Jesus from the book of Revelation, who will come back as a warrior to do war against his enemies and put them under his feet, through some conversations, this idea of a warrior, of a fighter, of the Lion of Judah coming back to do battle, it, it, it kind of shook some people. Not so far as it like offended them, it just kind of... It, it, it was hard to, to, to wrap their mind around a not meek and mild uh, Jesus who returns. But friends, 
If the idea of a warrior Jesus is kind of, if it's just a little bit difficult, if there's some friction there for us, isn't it a clear sign if the warrior Jesus kind of shakes us a little bit, isn't it a sign that we've forgotten we're in a war now? The words, our battle isn't against flesh and blood. It's against the enemy of God. I'm trying, not trying to over-embellish to scare you, but words of the world of the Bible says there is an enemy of God, like a roaring, prowling lion, looking to kill and destroy us, who wants us to be defeated, and we just pretend he's not real. Go back and read the Gospels. And I hope that like, I don't I don't mean that to sound pompous. Just go back and thumb through them seriously, and read the the language of of war and battle all over them. See the language that you'll find in the book. The God of peace was always going to crush Satan underneath his feet one day. This isn't my side theological project. It's the narrative of the Bible. Strong, powerful Jesus has been patient, but he will come back. But in the here and now, before he comes and destroys his enemy, the call is be strong and courageous while you're here. Stand in the power and the might of King Jesus and push back darkness here. Proclaim the light of the one who is coming to a world who needs him. It's going to be really hard. But be immovable. See, the words of old seem to apply over and over to us as a church. I think what Paul is saying and, and We've had conversations about this lately. God is pulling us out of a season right now. But I think these words almost prophetically stand over us right now for what he's doing. Paul is saying it. I think the word echoes it, and this is what God wants for us. Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead. But hear the promise. It's not just get up, work harder, do more, sacrifice more. Even though those realities are kind of in there, but awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead. And here's the promise on the backside, and Christ will shine upon you. He'll be close. He will be real. He won't leave you. He will not forsake you. The word always says, I've gone out before you. I'm not calling you to be anywhere that I won't be. The Spirit is calling us, church, to wake up in that a little bit. We've been lulled to sleep. We've got distracted. We've got weary out of planting season. By the Spirit, he's calling us to wake up. I think some of you hear it. I know you have because you've talked to me about it. But the hope is that we would listen and we would be revived. Like the series that we preached nine months ago, recalibrate and renew us, oh God. Awaken us. Uh, If this text... Or my words over this have somehow missed the, the mark. What, what do I want you to hear? We have a Savior and a Father who loved us so fully that Jesus has come and defeated our worst-case scenario. He's promised to finish the process one day. Do things hurt here now? Yeah. One day he'll finish it, though. But until then, he has invited us to walk in the light of his goodness, which means that we are invited. That's the wrong word. We are commanded to follow and trust him now. Those who love me will follow my commands. Those who love me hear my words and they listen to them. He is calling us. 
even in hard and painful times, to walk out on mission, to walk in the light of his kingdom in the here and the now. I pray that we'll see that and trust that this morning, that that reality becomes real, that you would see the reality of a good, beautiful, strong Savior who loves you. You're not just trying to appease God. God has done so much for you and has lavished his love on you, and then he walks you out into his beautiful mission. I don't need you, but I want you to be a part of what I'm doing, he says. The prayer is that we would wake up to that. Man, you guys can come back up. We'll take communion at the table today. Uh, During our last songs of worship, anyone is free to come and take. All we ask is that your faith be in Jesus if you do. 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26, we read this every time. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As we play four songs in closing, church, come up and take the bread and dip it into the cup and realize there's a real sacrifice that has been made for you. There's also a real resurrection that has happened And if your faith is in Jesus, it's coming for you as well. If you're tired, if you're hurt, or if you're defeated, there's still love and mercy available at the table, but there's also a calling, wake up. For any of you here, that is too much duty. He's not trying to crush you. He's calling you into beauty and mission. And I pray that you would hear that. For some of you, if your faith is far from Jesus and you feel him kind of calling at your heart, I'd love to pray with you later. Maybe it could be the first time that you come and experience the table and realize that there's a sacrifice for you as well. Church, I pray that our hearts are revived and awakened. The Spirit is calling, and I pray that he would do his work. Will you stand and pray with me? God, I pray that you would be ever near. Spirit, that you would be close. Man, our our songs, our sermons, our plans, our kids' ministry, our hospitality, without your presence, they're worthless, so come near. Spirit, we even just repent for the ways we've told you we don't need you. Come close to your work. Revive our hearts. Point to the Son. Let us see him ever clearly today. Father, I thank you for the season that you are drawing us out of. We just plead, keep working. We thank you that you're patient, that you don't give up on us, but that you revive our hearts. I pray that you would come and do that. Man, we don't invite you into our house. We invite ourselves to remember this is your house. Come near, work in us. I pray that you're glorified, that the reality of your resurrection would wreck our hearts in a good way, that they would... Open our eyes to the beauty of what has been done. You are so good, better than we could imagine. We thank you for your grace and mercy. Spirit, come and work in us today. Amen.